Ciao, and welcome to How's the Water? Como vai oggi, Gary? Molto bene. Mamma mia, are you, <laughs> are you speaking the Italian? Because we're doing another Italian book. Yes, as you well know, we are finishing our series on European literature by returning to Italy. But we are looking at a very different work to Left-Handed Dreams by Francesca Durante. This time, we are looking at The Periodic Table by Primo Levi, which is another book that examines the Second World War. Yes, uh, it's another book that does, to some extent, look at the effects of the growth of anti-Semitism and the way that it led into the Holocaust. However, I think it would be erroneous to say that it's the only subject covered by this multifaceted and, again, very distinct book. But first of all, do you have any thoughts on this book, having read it fairly recently? Well, I didn't know what to expect from it because... I hadn't heard of it before, and it's called The Periodic Table. So that leads you to believe it's a very scientific book, and it does deal with chemistry. But what Prima Levi did with it was um, separate his life into essentially chemical elements and how they related to different different things that he went through. So I thought that was a really creative creative way to express himself. And it was a, just a really unexpected type of book to read. Uh, that's what mm-hmm. I thought of it. What did you think of it? I thought it was great. I thought it was... <laughs> um, I knew a little bit about it uh, before we into it but not that much and yeah the way he manages to extrapolate like parts of his life through his love of chemistry is really good and I like that I think we often think of like science and art as very separate things but I would imagine that Levy didn't think that because I think Mm -hmm. he sees a lot of art in chemistry and he kind of manages to combine that in to um into great effect i think in this book i I thought it was brilliant what's interesting too is that he's uh like his career is chemistry and that's what he went to school for as we'll talk about in a bit and his background is primarily scientific and you don't normally get that with a lot of writers normally it's like oh they studied literature at school or their background was in journalism or they were teachers or it's something a little bit more linguistic or arts based. And he is just from a completely different background and was so moved by his experiences during the second world war and growing up and by his um, ancestry that he was compelled to write. And I, um, I think that's part of what makes it such a special book. And I really thought it was great too. Yeah, yeah. I think with a lot of writers, when they sort of cover subjects like maths or science, they might do it very well, but you do get the sense that they're kind of tourists in mm-hmm. that area, really. Whereas you certainly don't get that with uh, Levy, I don't think. He's, no. he, knows his, he knows his stuff. He knows what he's talking about. And he can, I know it's translated, but he can really write as well. Mm-hmm. I would almost be jealous of him, but he, uh, he had quite a hard time of it, as we're going to see when we get into the biography. So I'm not sure jealousy would be a, an appropriate emotion, really. No. Saying that, shall we have a look at the life of Primo Levi before we look into the book in more detail? Yeah, we certainly shall. Now, it's extremely safe to say that Levi lived a long and eventful life. We are going to endeavour to cover this fairly briefly in this bio. So um, 
please uh, forgive us if we fail to cover everything. And yes, you can get in touch with us if we make a mistake at <laughs> howsthewaterpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's our email address. So Levy was born in Turin in 1919 into a liberal Jewish family. At school, he excelled in spite of long periods of absence in which he was homeschooled. At secondary school, he was bullied by two boys for being Jewish, an experience uh, which traumatised him. And it's maybe a sign of the times that, I think on the Wikipedia page, it says he was only bullied by two boys for being Jewish. So, um, (laughs) which I found, yeah, it's not funny, but it's, it almost yeah. makes it sound like he was like, oh, look, lucky him. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it was that reading Concerning the Nature of Things by Sir William Bragg that inspired Levy to become a chemist. In spite of the fact that Mussolini's fascist government ruled Italy, Levy secured a place to study chemistry at the University of Turin. He failed the entrance exam initially after being summoned before the war ministry and accused of ignoring a draft notice the day before I think or even the day of the Hmm. exam the the day before I think so he was a little bit distracted (laughs) Uh, yeah as you would be Uh however in October 1938 the Italian racial laws came into force this barred Jews from beginning degrees however Levy had matriculated a year earlier so was able to complete his degree he was so lucky Uh, yes yes I'm not sure his luck lasted as we're going to find out Mm, yeah Yeah. Uh, he graduated in 1941 but the racial laws that we mentioned earlier did stop him from finding work. However, he managed to secure a position working in a mine under a secret identity. He then worked in Milan in a laboratory. Both of these experiences are recounted in the periodic table. After the German occupation of Italy, following their attempted surrender to the Allies, Levy eventually became part of a partisan group in the mountains. He was arrested by fascist militia and was sent to an internment camp at Fossili. After this was taken over by Nazis, he was deported to Auschwitz. He survived Auschwitz by working as an assistant in a factory that produced synthetic rubber, which meant that he didn't have to work outside in the freezing temperatures that killed so many people. Um, With the Red Army... Uh, approaching the camp was evacuated but as Levy was ill with scarlet fever he managed to avoid the death march which killed the majority of the surviving prisoners he then spent some time in a Soviet camp for former inmates of concentration Uh. camps after which he took a long railway journey back to Turin yeah not much fun for him during that Uh, no I don't think the uh, the second part of the war was a was a great time for him After taking a period of time to recover from these experiences, he found work in Milan and on his train journey commute to and from there, he would tell passengers about his experiences in Auschwitz. He then started to write poetry about these experiences. He met his wife at this time who taught him how to dance. So that's nice. Love conquers all through dance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) While working at a paint factory in Turin and staying in the company's dormitories, he began to write, If This Is a Man, his account of being interned in Auschwitz. He found an amateur publisher for this through a friend of his sister's, and it was published in September 1947. He ran a chemical consultancy with a friend from the top floor of this friend's parents' house, another experience which is detailed in the periodic table. In order to earn money, he reluctantly ended this consultancy and joined a family paint business, Siva, 
1950, and he was promoted to technical director at this company. However, he continued to write publishing The Truce in early 1961, which recounts his journey back to Turin after the war. In 1963, he began to experience bouts of serious depression, and who could blame him? At this time, he had two young children, a responsible job at a factory in which terrible accidents could happen, and he was also carrying traumatic memories of the war with him, as he would. He was prescribed several drugs, which didn't always work, and had a range of side effects, too. In 1975, he published a collection of poetry called L'Osteria di Brema, or the Bremen Beer Hall, as well as today's book, The Periodic Table. So how about we leave off this here and discuss today's book? Yeah, yeah, I'm certainly ready to do that. Great. So let's get into it. All right. So we're not going to go through the plot of the book because it is essentially composed of 21 short stories which largely take place before, during, and after the Second World War. Each of these stories is named after one of the elements and is in some way connected to this element. Many of them tell the story of Leve's experiences studying chemistry and then working as a chemist before, during, and after the war. This includes his working in a laboratory in the mines, in which as a Jew, he has to keep his identity secret, his later work in the chemical industry, being an ineffective partisan in the Italian mountains, his capture and imprisonment. However, the stories do largely skip over his time in Auschwitz. And I, this is because Levy has covered this already in If This Is A Man. I think at one point he says something in, in the periodic table. He writes, oh, this is covered elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Or, I have covered this elsewhere. Or mm-hmm. Like, I'm not even going to get touch this today. Cause yeah, I, yeah, I've been I did all, I've been there already <laughs> and I wrote yeah. about that already. So go there if you want to find out. Yeah, which is fair enough. And I also kind of respect that not wanting to kind of keep returning to it, you know, wanting yep. to keep keep the subject fresh. Mm. However, the book does contain some seemingly fictional stories, such as a tale which takes place on a remote island, a man's experiences with a boiler in a chemical plant, and a girl watching a man paint, and she and he sort of paints a circle around her and tells us that she can't move. So I thought that what we could do is choose a couple of the stories each and discuss them and their appeal to us. So Yep, I'm all for that. And okay. I've chosen a couple and I think they were great. Um, sure. But before we get into the stories that we have chosen and what they're about and why we like them, I wanted to ask you a relevant question. Please, go ahead. Yeah. Surprise me. So how were you at chemistry in school? Okay, so (laughs) not great. I wasn't much of a science. I wasn't very prolific in science, really. I wasn't prolific in very much in school, to be honest with you. But the way that science was taught in my school was it was all kind of lumped together for a lot of it. So for the first three years, we didn't do biology, chemistry and physics. We just did science. Um, And then I think for the last two years, they were separated out into the three things. And I remember really enjoying chemistry, but not because I had any great um, aptitude aptitude for it i just liked messing around with chemicals and bunsen burners and mm. you know burning my friend's pencils oh that stuff scared me at school oh, i didn't did like that part mm. or you know going to the sink and pouring different different chemicals into the test tubes and seeing, <laughs> seeing what would happen <laughs> that was great and um so maybe there was a little bit of a chemist in me but i 
think I just preferred the. Uh, it's more of a mad scientist in you, maybe. Yeah, I think there's a <laughs> there's a small license for destruction in the class, which um, I liked. I think, but yeah, I didn't do great in it at all. I didn't mm. do that well in, in any of the sciences, to be honest with you. And uh, can I ask you a question as well? Yeah, sure. Okay, so does this book stoke any interest in chemistry in you? Uh, no, no, I can't say that it has in particular. In fact, um, I was a little bit bummed out because when we started this book, once we kind of properly got into the the first few chapters, he does heavily start saying like, ah, oh, and the properties of this chemical and the relation to the, and I really started to think like, oh no, this book is just going to be like, this nerd really getting into how much chemistry, how awesome chemistry is and all the elements. And he does technically break down a lot of the compounds and uh, how they react in different ways and all of the, the very scientific stuff. And I wasn't into at all into chemistry at school. I barely passed chemistry. I think I got like a C minus in chemistry. When I was at school, which isn't barely passing, it's just average, but it's not, it was one of my worst classes, basically. So, but it did make me reconsider the, the world that we live in, in terms of um, just really kind of plainly looking at everything and myself and just thinking like, you know, we all like all we are, are just a bunch of atoms and molecules and things just like flying around. And um, at the end of the day, that is it. Maybe that's not all it is, but essentially, if you're looking at it from a chemical perspective, that is what it is. And I don't know, that's just not something I thought about very much before. And I found myself thinking about that more. And that part I find very fascinating and interesting in terms of like being inspired to think about chemistry more. No, it hasn't done that. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) You do better. Do better. Shall I get into the parts of the book that I that I liked? Yeah, please do. I'm looking forward to hearing what you've chosen. Okay. So the chapters that I've chosen were quite early on in the book. And, and I did this because I think you cover chapters that are a bit later on. So I thought that was mm. that was better. The first chapter that I'm going to talk about is the first chapter of the book. And it's essentially an homage to Levy's Jewish ancestors who had first settled in Italy in the 16th century. And he calls this chapter Argon, after the element of Argon, who, who would have known. So in fact, so there's a New York Times article from 1984 called Elements of a Life that I googled, and it puts my feelings in better terms than I can. Um, about a particular part of this chapter that I really loved. So to quote that, Levy rescues snatches of his ancestors' lost language, a local version of Judeo-Italian that combined Hebrew roots with Piedmontese endings and inflections, the revivication of this jargon, which Mr. Levy refers to as a kind of Mediterranean Yiddish and his revivification of some of the people who once spoke it is a sizable accomplishment and in its linguistic precision and playful wit sets the tone and direction for the pieces that follow. End quote. Uh, yeah, that is something I found I really enjoyed throughout the book because I think Levy, he could have been a linguist 
if he, if he'd been so inclined, I think he just has that kind of mind where he just really approaches a lot of things very analytically. And he's constantly playing with words and double meanings and different languages, including German and French and things like that. Because I know he spoke fluent Italian and German. Uh, I assume he knew a little bit of French. I assume he knew a little bit of English just because of um, his being a chemist and things like that. But it's it's just almost impossible to explain how he does this without just reading examples from the text itself. But it's just remarkable what he's done mm. with language. And that's very apparent and straight away in the first chapter of the book, playing around with things like that. In this chapter, he also, he speaks with revenants about grandparents and aunts and uncles and their roots in Italy, which was something I hadn't thought of as an American. When I think of the Holocaust, and I think of Jewish people, I think of Jewish citizens of Germany, and France and Poland and Holland. And I just never really considered Italian Jewish people before. So that perspective yeah. was good. Uh, he talks about the prejudices his family members reported facing back in the 1800s as children, mm -hmm. like his dad and his grandparents and the contempt they felt from non Jewish Italian children, who would make jokes about them stuff like that. He talks about their customs and their traditions, their um, proclivities, their peculiarities. And mm -hmm. mainly you have stories of love and heartbreak and religion and depression rises and falls. Um, and he begins this book basically painting a picture of the people he came from and how they were typical yet distinct in their ethnicity due to the remoteness of where they lived in Turin and in the mountains and stuff and where they'd always been. And he basically just pays respect to their memories by beginning a book of this nature with them. And I think it's a terrific way to set up an autobiography, to be honest. He did a yeah. great job. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I really, really liked it. Okay. All right. Very good. I think, yeah, the interesting thing for me from what you were saying is like the the little kinds of anti-Semitism and the growth of them within the family and how those little, I don't know, I don't want to call it little pockets because it was probably more than that, but how that probably is like the beginning of, you know, what happened to him ultimately, that kind of snowball mm. effect over centuries. Uh, you know? Yeah. You see like the the, the inklings. Yeah, yeah of the yeah. sentiment sort of just always kind of there mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then it sort of snubbles and that i think that's almost a message for our times really mm -hmm. in that we're not living in times as bad as he did but we're certainly living in um strained times i think in terms of racial tension you know mm -hmm. you only have to look at the news last week at What's her name? Is it Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I've been hearing a little bit about and the oh. things that she's been saying? About. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know. And it's little things like that where you think, oh, we should just laugh at these people because they're so ridiculous. But no, I don't I don't think we should laugh at them. We have to take them seriously. And I think reading books like this is like a nice little indication of that, that these people take this, this uh, kind of thing very seriously and it can grow into something really horrible. Yes, so. Totally. The next chapter that I thought was just a really interesting anecdote is called Potassium. Yeah. And Potassium, it takes place in January of 1941. And we all know what was going on then, particularly where he was. Um, refugees had been coming to Italy from Poland and France, and there were books being smuggled into the country, relaying details of certain quote unquote Nazi atrocities 
that were taking place and rumors of worse things that everyone seemed to know about, but weren't really talking about or acknowledging and and, uh, AKA concentration camps and Mm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Jewish people were being faced with the choice of what Levy wrote as a self-imposed blindness to the worsening situation in Italy. So you basically just go, oh, maybe things will be okay. Or you transplant to another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having neither money nor connections abroad combined with like the isolation of their lives in Turin, in the mountains, Levy's family stayed where they were and didn't evacuate. They didn't escape or anything like that to another place. Primo Levy was at university and dealing with the realities of rising anti-Jewish sentiment among his fellow students and teachers. And he had resigned himself to the possibility of not even receiving a degree since it had been made forbidden by Hitler and Mussolini. He grew a little bit disillusioned with chemistry and he took a course in physics. Though um, racial laws prohibited it and he was rejected numerous times, eventually a university assistant professor agreed to take him on as a student assistant. And in this laboratory, he was free to experiment as he pleased without supervision, but he was given little tasks. And one of them was to purify chemicals like benzene so they could be used for different things. During his first distilling process, he substituted potassium for sodium because chemically they're similar compounds, I guess, is from what I understand. Like he needed sodium to do this distilling thing. And then he said, oh, potassium is pretty much the same chemically. So I'll take that instead. Um, And he ended up having an accident where the flask he was using exploded in his hands after catching fire when he was empty. He poured some water into the flask and it just exploded. So he explained what happened to the professor and the professor pointed out that, an, well, an empty flask doesn't catch fire on its own. So Levy, he was like, insisted it had been meticulously clean. And then he revisited the accident scene and he discovered a tiny white fleck of potassium on a shard of glass left over during an earlier part of the process. And this little fleck was all that was needed for an explosive reaction when combined with water and the benzene vapors. And had he used sodium as he was supposed to, nothing would happen. So from this, he learned some early lessons that apply to chemistry and life in general. Um, One, that you can't just assume you know everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think everyone comes to that point every like we're a very humbling moment where you go, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm wrong. I'm wrong about some things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'm still waiting for that moment. (laughs) Okay. The second thing he learned was that you must be wary of practically identical things. So of surrogates, of approximates, you can get dramatically different results in using one for the other. And also that you must measure everything and everybody with a degree of distrust and distance. And that was... um, probably a pretty good life lesson come to find out later yes yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. there is is a sense of him i think through through a lot of the ensuing chapters maybe not throughout the whole book that he does have a distance from people i think you know when when he talks about some of his work you don't really ever get the sense that he's very integrated into the places where he is working the next two places certainly Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I chose those two chapters, those two anecdotes, because they they give a really good background to him. Um, at least the first chapter does. The second chapter I chose 
it's not the second chapter in the book by any means. It's it's but it's a story from his younger years, his early days. He's still at university. The times that he was in were just starting to change very dramatically. You're a young student dealing with that. Yeah. So I just thought they were just just really great things to include in this episode. So those are mine. Yeah. Okay. I think they were excellent choices. Thank, Thank you. you for them. The first chapter that I've picked is Nickel, which is again quite early on in the book, about a third of the way through. So at this point, Levy has graduated, but he can't find any work because of mm -hmm. the racial laws. So he's living in his parents' uh, flat, I think it is, in uh, Turin, and his uh, his dad is dying, basically. So he's in a he's in pretty sort of bad straits. They're desperate for money, and then there's a knock on the door, and it's uh, and a lieutenant in the army. Uh, this is has, so badass. This is yeah, has basically recruited him to come and work in an asbestos mine somewhere away from Turin. It's almost in like a secret location, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So he sort of talks to his family and he decides to take the job because they, they need the money so much. So he works for sort of three months in this mine, uh, mining nickel, I think. And he, he has to keep his identity secret from all of his colleagues. And there's some quite funny bits where his, his colleagues think that he's, do they think he's part of the secret police or that he's, he's they have inspector? all kinds of ideas about him. Cause yeah. they have, no, he's so mysterious. He's cause they're not allowed to really talk to him and he's not allowed to talk about himself. And so yeah, it's yeah. kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I really, yeah, it is funny. Yeah. Cause he's like basically on the run and hiding and they're kind of scared of him. Yeah. And he's completely disempowered. So there's, there's this kind of nice dichotomy where he, by losing his identity and keeping that secret, he kind of gains a kind of power over people. Mm -hmm. And it's all, it's also the thing I like about it is that even though he's living in this very anti-Semitic time in his anti-Semitic culture, these people still need him. So they've obviously, mm -hmm. he's obviously been tracked down to come and do this top secret work. So mm -hmm. even though he's kind of maybe considered subhuman in some ways, well, you know, how does that work if you still need this person to come to come and work in your mind? Because mm. he's yeah. the only one with the skills to do it. And I just I liked the just him kind of hiding out there, really, and doing this work. And it's where he begins to fall in. Love. Obviously, he's already in love with chemistry, I think, at this point. But he begins to fall in love with work. And he just really likes the sort of doing the small kind of detailed works in like the quantitative analysis that he does of like mm. the rock of the rock samples and I, I just really like that I can kind of identify with that I think I've got that kind of slightly uh, the mind of kind of a drudge really someone that you kind of like <laughs> the you know the feeling of satisfaction of getting like little tasks little simple tasks done think of ticking things off and uh, I think I think he to some extent Levy had that as well there were no great revelations to me in this chapter. I just really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed him, I think, making a success of his mind during this really horrible time. But at the same time, he does come to realise that the work that he's doing is supporting the war efforts which obviously he's very, very against. And you know, he's hoping that Italy lose the war because of the, the discriminatory laws that are in place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there was a little quote. Yeah. He said, 
I was thinking of having opened a door with a key and of possessing the key to many doors because to all of them, I was thinking of having thought of something that nobody else had yet thought, not even in Canada or New Caledonia. And I felt invincible and untouchable, even when faced by close enemies closer each month. Finally, I was thinking of having had a far from ignoble revenge on those who had declared me biologically inferior. So I really, I really like that part. However, uh, he does say, I was not thinking that if the method of extraction I had caught sight of could have found industrial application, the nickel produced would have ended up in fascist Italy and Hitler, Germany's armour plate and artillery shells. I was not thinking that during these very months there had been discovered in Albania deposits of nickel mineral before which hours could go and hide and along with it every project of mine, the directors and the lieutenants. So basically the work that he's doing, and yeah, I didn't really mention, he kind of comes across a very successful way of extracting this nickel, doesn't he? From yes. The man. Yeah, and so he's a success there. However, this success will ultimately go to supporting a war effort, which he is against, and supporting the people that are oppressing him. So his little victory mm-hmm. for himself is a, is a little victory for I mean, What are you supposed to do? Was he just not supposed to, I mean, I know that's something, like, was he supposed to just quit? It's such a hard place to be in. Yeah, yeah. Being yeah. him, like that's yeah. like that's like yeah, you, real life. Well, it's choices. A, it, <laughs> it is. It is, isn't it? I mean, what what would, what would what would you have done in those circumstances? I know. You, well, I mean, I would have kept going because you need you know this whole time. It's like he's trying. He has to make money to send back to his parents. Dad is poorly, and his mother needs to be taken care of. And you've got he's got. I believe he has a sister. Or had a mm-hmm. sister, excuse me. Just people to support, and when you're faced with those realities, I guess. I mean, God, that must have sucked finding that out. I don't know when he found that out. I think he knows it all the time. Yeah, but it's because he says I was not thinking of it. It's he. He's kind of aware of it, but he puts that knowledge to one side in order to focus mm-hmm. on the day to day. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I can understand that you're going through this awful time, just focusing on the task at hand. Must must be very appealing, and. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we can forget the the need that we have that even if our superiors are people we don't like or we don't identify with or we are ideologically opposed to them, we still want to please them, I think. I mean, maybe we've all had bosses that we don't maybe don't uh, admire in any way, but you still want them to like you and like the work that you're doing. And, yeah, and this was a nice chapter because it's a first job. We've all had a first job. You're kind of yes. getting getting your teeth into what what hard work is. And I'm really glad you picked that one. Um, I would have picked it for myself if you hadn't picked it. So. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, it's cool. It's fine. Yeah. Actually, the both of the ones that you picked were really, really good. So I'll let you introduce the second one too. Okay. Yep. So the second one was my favorite chapter of the book, and that is mm-hmm. Vanadium. At this point, this is a number of years later. So this is when he is now working for the family paint firm, which are called... Siva. 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 And they are having some problems with the varnish that they are using. And the varnish is being bought from a company in Germany called w the name of a similar the name of our previous book so maybe it's double v we don't know Hmm. okay uh and this company is one of the offshoots of ig farben i don't know if you know who ig farben were but they were 
a arms manufacturer during the war that used the slave labor of the Jews in the concentration camp mm. or the inmates in the concentration camp. So he is corresponding with his company about this varnish and he's getting these very mundane letters back about, oh, why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? And these are things that he's already tried. And he realizes that the person in the company that he is corresponding with, uh, a Dr. Muller, is somebody that was part of IG Farman that was using him while he was in Auschwitz mm -hmm. at the so, rubber making uh, rubber. Yeah, yeah the rubber making plant so and he sort of remembers this person not far not far from fondly but not as one of the main kind of oppressors just someone who was kind of around um like a minder um, or someone who was there to like or yeah. a supervisor or some cold yeah. sort of thing yeah yeah it was kind of overseeing him mm -hmm. during his during his work there Okay, so he writes to this person and asks, is it you? I, this is me. <laughs> I'm this guy. Are you the Dr. Muller that I knew while I was in Auschwitz? And the, guy, and the Dr. Muller writes back and confirms that it is him. Mm -hmm. And then they have this correspondence, which I found quite moving because Levy is kind of in this very kind of strange position of he wants to forgive and he doesn't want to forgive, but he wants he wants to allow Dr. Muller to make his case to him about what was going on and who he was and why he was there. Yeah, you justify yeah. all this to me now that we, this has been over for a while and we can talk about it. And to be fair, I don't know if we should be fair to Dr. Muller. I mean, we only have, we only have these words uh, in this chapter to know about it, but he does write back and he does engage with Levy. He's kind of slightly defensive um, but he's not he does not sort of absolve himself of any wrongdoing so he sort of gives a little biography of what happened to him and how he he says and this is uh, Dr Muller's sort of writing to Levy he says I was dragged initially along by the general enthusiasm for Hitler's regime okay so he's kind of caught up in that kind of initial or that that burst of energy maybe uh -huh. that, that happened in the early part of um, Hitler's ascendancy to power in the, in the mid thirties in Germany. But then he, he does become kind of doubtful, I guess he claims. And then he just, he sort of talks about how he ends up, you know, he, he basically starts working for IG Farben and then is posted to Auschwitz. And he claims not really to know what's going on there. You can kind of see some of the mistreatment, but doesn't know that people mm -hmm. are being murdered very close. Mm -hmm. And this is what he says. Um, whereas I think Levy doesn't entirely believe him. He says something like, well, you can see, you yeah. can see the smoke from where you were working yeah. out, of the, out of the window. That was, yeah, that you was... could see the crematorium smoke from <laughs> yeah. out of the factory windows. So what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. Uh, did you not uh -huh. know what that was? Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe he didn't know. Uh, and, then, yeah. and then he talks about he gets captured himself, Dr. Muller, eventually by the Americans. And I found a bit of the spout of the smoke. So I'm going to read that. It says, this is Levy's words. He too, Muller, obviously had not demanded explanations from anyone, not even from himself. Although in clear days, the flames of the crematorium were visible from the Buna factory. So there you go. 
Then uh, it, it goes on. A little before the final collapse, he, Molo again, had been captured by the Americans and locked up for a few days in a camp for prisoners of war that he, with unwitting irony, described as being primitively equipped. And that bit, <laughs> that bit made me laugh out loud that somebody could write to a former prisoner of Auschwitz, kind of say that a war camp that they'd been in for a few days was, oh, the equipment here is a little bit primitive. Um, yeah. There's a lot of kind of dry humour there. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they kind of agree to meet. So Muller agrees to meet Levy and uh, he says that he will, they're going to, where are they going to meet? I'm just kind of scanning through. Oh, the yes. There. Because. Um, Somewhere in Italy, isn't it? Yes, because yeah. Muller, ha- he's desperate. He almost seems like it because he's asked a couple of times in letters and, and Levy responds to him, but never responds to that part about meeting. He kind yeah. of says, I avoided t- saying that I would meet him and mm-hmm. whatever. And then he ends up, Muller calls him or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they yeah, speak, yeah, yeah. and it, it, and he just kind of says, "Um, the t- the conversation led to that, and so I sort of was like, yeah, I'll, fine, I'll meet you, as you might do when you're ambushed a little bit by some something like that, and you might not yeah. know what to do." So they agree to meet, and did you find where it was? Um, it's near the end. I, that's right. Okay, so okay, so Levy sends him a book, sends him his book, doesn't he? So he sends him if this is a man which he reads. And then it says, he perceived in my book an overcoming of Judaism, a fulfillment of the Christian precept to love one's enemies and a testimony of faith in man. And he included by insisting on the necessity of a meeting in Germany or Italy, where he was ready to join me when and where I wished, preferably on the Riviera. And then they keep kind of they're kind of corresponding in two ways, aren't they? They're having this very personal correspondence, but also they're still talking. They're sending <laughs> sure, le- that varnish. <laughs> they're still sending letters about the varnish as well, which yeah. is quite funny, yeah. Because that, that problem needs to get sorted. Why is this, uh, what is the problem with this resin in this varnish? So there is that part then. Um, God, how weird. Yeah, so you know, you kind of get the feeling that he's looking for some kind of forgiveness, and he sees in Levy mm. this, this person that can forgive him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, An absolution. Yeah, so Levy writes back on my first free Sunday, I set about full of perplexity, preparing a draft as sincere as possible, balanced and dignified. I made a draft, I thanked him for having taken me into the lab. This is in Auschwitz, so he was taken into the lab and that kind of helped save his life, really. So this Muller helped to, one of the reasons that Levy is alive is, is because of this Muller, um, even though he's an enemy or was uh-huh. an enemy. I declared myself ready to forgive my enemies and perhaps even to love them, but only when they showed certain signs of repentance. That is when they ceased being enemies. In the opposite case, that of the enemy who remains an enemy, who perseveres in his desire to inflict suffering, it is certain that one must not forgive him. One can only try to salvage him. One can, one must discuss with him, but it is our duty to judge him, not to forgive him. Yeah, later on, that says that same evening, Muller called me on the telephone from Germany. The connection was bad. And in any event, by now, it is no longer easy for me to understand German on the telephone. His voice was laboured and seemed broken, his tone tense and agitated. He announced that for Pentecost within six weeks, he would come to Finale Ligoli. Could we meet? Taken unawares, I said yes. I asked him to let me know beforehand the details of his arrival and put aside my now superfluous draft. So another letter that he's writing. 
Eight days later, I received from Mrs. Muller the announcement of the unexpected death of Dr. Lothar Muller in his 60th year of life. So he dies before they get to meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the end of that. So he never gets really to get this to um, see if Muller wants to be forgiven and also never gets to find out a little bit more about you know, what was going on behind the scenes and what the, the motivation for these people doing these, participating maybe in... Uh, these horrible crimes in a tangential, slightly tangential way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a really great chapter. It yeah, is the best. I think, yeah, I think it's the best chapter in the book. Um, and it's it's almost the last chapter, isn't it? I mean, there's only one more um, chapter after that, and that's like where he sort of tells this, uh, the story of carbon. So he kind mm-hmm. of deviates completely away, and he, it's kind of just an indulgence of his love of chemistry and, and how much that, is um how present that is in everything that we that we experienced those are our choices um Mm -hmm. our um, chosen anecdotes from the periodic table and there are so many more really really great chapters and just for the sake of time we can't talk about everything and also like it just would it would be crazy but there are so many great stories in there that we would encourage you to read. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And such a great writer, such a, yeah, such a very interesting way of writing. And like we said, with the chemistry background, it's so interesting when someone is a writer, but they come from a background that's not literature. That's so refreshing. And yeah, not, yeah. There's, it's just something really unexpected and nice about that. So yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's not, there's no feeling in this book that he learned to write on a course. Yeah, like yeah. Well. Like uh, there's yeah. no like con- nothing feels contrived or like cliche or weird or anything. He's just, you know, he's one of those people. When it's like write what you know, he did mm. it. He wrote, he wrote a fucking autobiography about chemistry, and it's, yeah, yeah. it's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you you say write write what you know, but he knew a lot, so he had a big. I mean, advantage. yeah, that's too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that's yeah. true. Uh, do you want in our um, typical fashion? Do you want to ask each other a few questions? Yeah, go for it. Um, should I ask you? Sure. Um, so my question for you is: Do you think people are especially attra- attracted to grim subject matter in? In books, but also in films, podcasts, that kind of thing. Oh, I think people have always been into stuff like that for a really long time. When um, I think there's a quote from a podcast I used to listen to, a true crime podcast. I can't remember which one it was, but um, they they laughed because people would say uh, it was like 2015 or something. And Mm -hmm. people would go, why true crime now for people? And it was like, people have always been really fascinated with like doing seances and been really interested in like things being haunted and the and death and memorabilia from dead things but dead people and visiting the sites where people have died and that's always just been something um, in our in in our nature i think we just hear more about it now because of the internet and it's easier to to know that there's quite a few people who feel the same way um but yeah definitely people are really attracted to it it just it highlights a side of human nature that's particularly dark i think we all kind of have 
Yeah, yeah. There. And I, it's cur- it's curious because we don't, you know, death is such a curious subject, I think, for a lot of people that we don't understand. And so it's something everyone's drawn to, to some degree, I think, some more than others. Uh, can I ask you a question? Yes, you certainly can. So do you think, because we read this and we've read Double V. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, do you think that literature of this period has a particular attraction? Do you mean about the, about the war? Yeah, definitely. Well, like World War II it, literature from like uh, maybe a little bit before, a little bit after that time, kind of like 30s, 40s literature. Yeah, I, think, I think it definitely does. I mean, probably in films particularly, I would imagine that World War II is, has probably been covered more than any other event <laughs> ever in, in Hollywood. I mean, obviously it kind of happened at the, at the beginning of Hollywood, which was probably part of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think with the second world war there are so many so much happened and so many stories true and fictional that can be derived from that the you know just horrible grim stories stories of heroism you know people overcoming like impossible odds you know the grimness to it um so yes i do and it's all because it's in the past as well and we know how it finished i think that has an appeal as well to people. It's almost like a contained uh, event now that's finished that we can go back to and cherry pick what we like from. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I do, I do think that it does. Yeah, I just think it's one of the appeals of World War II in general is that you just can't even imagine that happening now. You see glimmers of maybe something like that could happen, but. What happened was Germany went crazy and almost took over the world like a soup, like a super villain, like movie. And people don't understand. I can't even imagine how freaky that must have been. Like, ugh, I don't know. I When you actually think about what could have happened, it's terrifying. And then what what actually did happen was even more terrifying. But that's why I think people get so attracted to World War II, especially was because it was like something out of your worst nightmare almost happened. Well, it did happen. It was like the the battle of good and evil. You couldn't have made a movie about that now people would have believed. Do you know what I mean? It was so crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, I guess. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's just my opinion on that. Shall we go on to the rest of Primo Levi's biography? Finish out. Yeah, so I'll tell you what happened to him. Okay. Uh, once he had written this book and it had been published. In 1978, he published Le Litti Racconti, Moments of Reprieve, which addresses characters he encountered while imprisoned. The year before, aged 58, Levy retired from Siva to write full time. His subsequent works include La Chiavia Stella, The Monkey Wrench, 1978, his only novel, If Not Now, When. In 1984, he wrote the introduction to the autobiography of Rudolf Hoss, who, as we mentioned on a previous episode, was the commandant of Auschwitz Hmm. between 1940 and 1943. And he, before he was hanged, wrote his own autobiography and Levy (laughs) wrote the introduction to that. (laughs) Crazy. Yeah, I think that's a, another story. His mm-hmm. other works in, include, uh, this is Levy, not Rudolf Haas. 
Uh, <laughs> Good. Thank other, you. There's <laughs> other words to call. This hasn't sort of, segued into a biography of Rudolf Hoss. No, no, that's next week. Okay. Um, it, all right. So Levy's other works include E Samosi E E Savati, The Drowned and the Saved, and The Mirror Maker. No, I don't have a translation for that one. Uh, a collection of short stories. Um, and then Levy died after a fall from the landing of his apartment in Turin in April 1987. This death was ruled suicide by the coroner. However, he didn't leave a note and whether it was an accident or a deliberate act is very much a subject of debate. And that's the life of Prima Levy. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Weird yeah. ending to that. Uh, it's just a strange, strange way to go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody knows whether he meant to fall or not. Hmm. Hopefully it was just an accident, you would say. But I mean, there is the, I think I'm not surprised if they thought it was a suicide because of his history of like depression and stuff at the time, like when he was a little bit younger and who knows if that had to do with it. But yeah, yeah. I think the thing that strikes me as strange is that this was like a fall, like inside a building. Yeah. So he fell, he fell down the internal so I say he fell down the inside of a building from from the third third floor. I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that seems like an odd choice to me because it just seems like there'd be more <laughs> an odd choice. <laughs> you know, I know yeah. when people if people commit suicide by falling, it's normally they go outside. Yeah, normally. Yeah, 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 yeah you're right. There's more space to do it in. I don't. I don't mean to be. Flippant, and we're not experts. But, um, mm. Maybe I'm just. Maybe I'm just getting this from Hollywood. Would it be all right if I read a final quote from this book? Yes, it would. I'm, uh, yeah, I'd like to hear what you've chosen. Well, this is a quote from the final chapter, and it's called Carbon. And as you said before, it is just a, a chapter based on the story of a molecule of carbon or an atom of carbon that is floating along. But he has some very interesting insights in this as well, just about life and his career and, and chemistry in general. So I thought I would read something about that. Having reached this point in life, what chemist facing the periodic table or the monumental indices of Bielstein or Landolt does not perceive scattered among them the sad tatters or trophies of his own professional past. He only has to leaf through any treaties and memories rise up in bunches. There is among us he who has tied his destiny indelibly to bromine or to propylene or the dash NCO group or glutamic acid. And every chemistry student faced by almost any treaties should be aware that on one of those pages, perhaps in a single line, formula, or word, his future is written in indecipherable characters, which, however, will become clear afterward, after success, error, or guilt, victory, or defeat. Every no longer young chemist turning again to the Verhangnisvoll page in that same treatise is struck by love or disgust, delights or despairs. So it happens, therefore, that every element says something to someone, something different to each, like the mountain valleys or beaches visited in youth. That is an excellent choice, I have to say. 
Oh, you like it. I like it very much. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was great. You know, and then he gets into, oh, and the carbon goes into a glass of milk and it goes into a tree and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Nature. What I like about carbon, if I could just kind of like really squeeze in a last... You mean carbon the chapter? Or carbon, carbon the chapter. Carbon, carbon <laughs> no, carbon the chapter is mm-hmm. that um, it's probably the closest a scientist, like actually reading about the journey of a carbon atom is the mm. closest a scientist or anyone could get to maybe like the idea of maybe spirituality in terms of like reincarnation. Yeah. Uh, there are parts of us that get recycled and are born again in t- plants or in in other people or other things or in a, mm. the eye of an animal or something like that. Yeah. And I found that to be quite beautiful and, and nice. Yeah. 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 That's very much true. I think. Yeah. That's it. That's our, our, our little analysis of the periodic table. And that is also the end of our little uh, European literature series that we've done. So we've covered five books. Has it been yeah. five books? It's been five. Can you name them all? We began with Perfume by... By Patrick Suskind. Thank you. I'm Tired by Patrick Suskind. Then we Mm. went on to Independent People by... Haldor Laxness. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I'm yes. not looking at the, I'm not looking at the shelf behind me. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, I don't yeah. have the, you're lucky because I don't have the books with me right here. Yeah. Um, and then we went on to left hand. We're getting more recent left handed dreams. Francesca Durante. Mm-hmm. Double V by George Perec. Yeah. George <laughs> And then now, um, yeah, Periodic Table by Primo Levy. Did you have a favorite from those? This, w- I mean... This is pretty good. I would say if I, out of all of them, maybe perfume mm. was the, I think perfume was a great read, really. I don't, yeah. it's not, none of these, you could read any of them and say one is like the best of them, but in terms of yeah. being like a really enjoyable read, I would say perfume was, yeah. was fantastic. This was pretty good too. When um like you're thumbing back through it and re, you know, looking at it again, a lot of things really hit you. Double V was kind of like that too, actually. It takes a few, you glance back at it again and you're like, oh, that was really meaningful. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I found that with Double V, like rereading bits of it for the for the episode we did. Yeah. I, I think I enjoyed that more than reading it for the first time. Yeah. Um, I haven't had, as you could probably tell from my analysis of those chapters, I haven't had the chance to do that with this, um, but I, I'm definitely going to reread it at some point. Today, you know, it's, it's well worth it. You can tell, you know, says they none of them, with the exception of like Double V and this one, they were, you know, written about the same kind of thing. The others, they don't really have much to do with each other. Mm. They're written from a lot of different kinds of places and written in different times. And Perfume is the most different in terms of it's not like Perfume and Independent People were actual fiction stories. Um, yeah. Francesca Durante's book was a fiction story as well, but it almost has the feel of an autobiography too. Yeah. The way that yeah. she wrote it and it's short and um, um, perfume was just more of a conventional like fiction story, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was a very easy read. It was, yeah. Just a, a book about murder, perfume yes. and murder. Delightful. Yeah, combination. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Back to grim subject matter. And then independent people, it got a little bit more introspective. Mm. You're dealing with, with um, people and their humanity and decisions that they're making. And then you get into the single Italian woman in New York, this immigrant in New York dealing with these, I, I, this identity crisis moving into George Parekh, who was very much having an identity crisis uh, mm. as well from childhood and splintered really, you could say did, even between adulthood did, and childhood. We forgot to mention, didn't we? Did you notice the connection between double V and left-handed dreams? I feel like I've go on. There's a bit in double V where he starts to believe, or he mentions believing that he is naturally left-handed, yes. but, he's, but he's been made to write with his right yes, hand. Yes, I did and, think of that. Yeah, you're right. And I, I can't believe we did a whole episode and we didn't mention that. But yeah. That just came to me. And yeah, so there's a sense of a ghost of another identity within him that he's trying to discover. And the whole book is about that. Like, Sure. It was very strange how like we read that Francesca Durante and then we went straight into Double V and it was like a very similar yeah. kind of thing. And then um, and then we left Double V behind and got into this and it's very much just a reclaiming of his humanity. Yes. In yeah, it. Yeah. So, and in a sense that brings us back to Perfume where it's a guy who's searching for humanity and maybe realizing he doesn't really have much of it and decides he doesn't really care. Yeah, it uh, was interesting choices we picked. Yeah. I think. I don't think he's searching for humanity. I don't, I don't think there's any point where you would say, oh, he's trying to find a way to be human. I think he's willfully enjoying his lack of humanity. Yeah. Uh, I might, maybe we'll, we, we'll have to, well, you might not want to, but I might have to reread Perfume again because I really enjoyed that. So I might do that. Yeah, yeah, too. yeah. It's a great um, book, Perfume. But if you've listened to all five episodes of the series, and that's so kind of you. To do that, and yeah. we, God, we appreciate. We know people download these and they listen, and that's amazing. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, I would. I would, if I knew where you were, I would honestly come and pin a, pin a medal on your chest. Yeah, wherever you, deserve, you are, you, you do deserve yeah. it. <laughs> thank Thanks, you. and yeah, we we'll look forward to um, updating you with a new episode very soon. Yeah, we'll be back soon, hopefully. So we're going to try and say goodbye in. Uh, first French, then Italian, then Icelandic, just to cover the, the languages that we've looked at in this series. Oh, that we have looked at just, it's just three different languages. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Just two Italian books. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Yes, we will say it, um, in French, in honor of perfume and double V, we will say au revoir. Au revoir. Uh, in honor of Francesca Durante's left-handed dreams and in honor of Prima Levi and the periodic table, we will say... Arrivederci. Arrivederci. And in honor of Halder Laxness and his lovely Nobel Prize winning novel, Independent People. Jesus, I almost forgot it. God, I'm tired. We will say bless. Bless. And if you made it to the end of that, then you really do deserve that medal very much. You do. So thank you very much for listening and we will see you soon. Okay, goodbye. <laughs>